Good evening, everybody. So at this point in the retreat, you imagine some of you at least uh, beginning to reflect on your expectations about being here and whether those expectations are being met or the ideas that you had about coming on a loving kindness retreat imagining sitting radiating love to the whole entire world bliss light love maybe for those of you who had some retreat experience with mindfulness vipassana practice maybe somewhat attuned to the the dangers of those kind of expectations because we come to a retreat and we get to see the reality of our experience and uh, not always so easy. Even though we're cultivating these beautiful, heartful qualities in this beautiful, silent environment, we see that it's not so easy to reside in the Brahma Viharas, these divine abodes. That's why we only rent an apartment there. We don't own, you know, we're visitors. So, and that's why we practice. That's why we do this difficult work. And many of you reported today the, the effort that's required, you know, the perseverance. And it brings to mind a story from when I was teaching matter a couple of years ago at Spirit Rock. And um, this woman had just recently lost her son and came in a very uh, distraught place, as you can imagine, the most intense kind of suffering. And she gave herself to the practice. She didn't really know what else to do. And she arrived feeling like her life wasn't worth living. And, you know, just like many of you reported, it doesn't feel like much is happening. I'm doing the phrases, but there's very little kindling in the heart that's being lit. And, but at the end of the retreat, she said, I've, I've now found why my life is worth living again. But somehow through the working through of that pain and suffering, not that it was resolved by any means in a week of practice, but it gave a tremendous strength and courage, both the way that she was able to go into that experience to, to hold herself. And that's partly what's so beautiful about these retreats is it creates this very powerful container to hold our experience in a way that we might not have experienced before. So I partly share that story because sometimes it feels like when we're in the middle of the day, may I be well, may I be happy, may I be well, may I be happy, What's the point? That as Guy mentioned yesterday, we're planting these very powerful seeds of intention, very wholesome forces in the mind that bear fruit. And it's not up to us as farmers when they, when they sprout, when they rise, when they establish themselves. But our job is to keep tending this garden of love, of kindness, of care. There's a phrase that I particularly like um, from the Sixth Zen Patriarch, a great Chinese teacher 
who was talking about the unity of mindfulness and metta or kindness. And as I'm hoping you're coming to see that they're not separate practices, that they, they have their own methodologies, but they really have a central focus. And this expression that he, he, he stated was, it goes like this. He said, awareness is the foundation of kindness. Awareness is the foundation of kindness, but kindness is the expression of awareness. So we, we utilize our practice, our mindfulness, our capacity to be present to really support the meta practice. And the meta practice becomes like an outflow of a manifestation, as he says, an expression of that awareness. So as we've talked about in different ways, the heart is like this multifaceted jewel. And the core of that is the heart of love, the heart of kindness, the heart of metta. And as we, as we, as the, we can refract the, 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 the lens, the, the, the jewel in different light, as it, as it turns towards uh, suffering or the suffering of the world, it develops a different flavor, different hue. And that, in this case, compassion or care or concern. And that, that's mostly what I want to talk about tonight is the quality of compassion. What happens when we turn that lens, that kind attention to suffering, to pain, to difficulty? And it feels like an appropriate time to do that on, on the retreat. Certainly what I noticed in the groups today, uh, as often happens in the middle part of the retreat, is we start to feel some of the heavier burdens that we carry some of the pain, some of the grief, some of the loss. You know, we live such busy lives that there's very little space, very little room for us to actually feel and process what's going on, especially on a deeper level. And often we arrive on a retreat where there's a lot of space uh, for these things to surface. And so we start touching this deeper layer of our being that's not necessarily so easy to be with the losses, the disappointments, the rejections. And so the practice of compassion is about learning how to turn towards, how to turn that lens of kindness that we're developing in the meta, and how to hold steady with a, with a gentle, receptive, heartful attention to whatever experience we meet on that, on that difficult spectrum. And out of that comes many profound blessings and transformations. This is um, from a poet, Roshani, which, who expresses it very beautifully, what happens when we go into the most difficult places with an open heart. She says, there is a brokenness out of which comes the unbroken, a shatteredness out of which blooms the unshatterable. There is a sorrow beyond all grief which leads to joy and a fragility out of whose depths emerges strength. There is a hollow space too vast for words through which we pass with each loss, out of whose darkness we are sanctioned into being. There is a cry deeper than all sound, whose serrated edges cut the heart as we break open, to the place inside which is unbreakable and whole while learning to sing. There is a brokenness out of which comes the unbroken, the unshatterable. 
So maybe you've tasted some of that, that by this capacity we have to go into the difficult, that we actually touch something that's perhaps even more powerful than we imagined. These qualities of the Brahma Viharas are, are, are boundless qualities. So they're not defined by our usual egoic parameters. So what exactly is this quality of compassion? You all know it. You're all familiar with it in different ways. And as someone mentioned, I think a guy mentioned yesterday, or Sharon, it's the quivering of the heart. It's that resonance in the heart that, that feels, compassion, that's, that feels with, that feels the suffering of, us, of ourselves or another. There's a resonance. There's a sense of connection. In that connection, we feel almost literally the suffering of another. And there's many different facets. Um, it's on a very simple level, just the, the feeling of empathy. You come into the meditation hall here, someone's crying in the sitting, you don't know why. Um, and just the heart moves. It wants to reach out, it wants to comfort, it wants to console, it, it understands. Oh, they're suffering, probably. You know, maybe they're tears of joy, but in this case, we'll say they're tears of sadness. And the heart just naturally wants to, to reach out. So it's the feeling of concern that we'll feel for a child who's upset, for a partner who's in distress. Um, at Spirit Rock, we have, these, we have a lot of, like here, beautiful uh, wildlife, a little less wildlife around at the moment, but they're around see the footsteps everywhere. And um, something that's often the source of a lot of attention at Spirit Rock is we have these uh, swallows that come nest every year. And uh, for whatever reason, they choose to nest above the bathrooms, which is probably the busiest point of traffic in the whole place uh, by the meditation hall. But they nest there and they come back every year, most years. And you see once the babies grow a little and they hatch and you see them quivering shaking, very vulnerable, very beautiful little beings, and the parents are coming and swooping down and giving food, and, and everybody's piling in and out of the meditation hall. And of course, you know, as you, as you are on retreat, you get more sensitive and receptive, and the heart just blooms. You know, there's just that wish of, oh, may you be safe, may you not fall out of your nest, may you be fed. You know, one night I came up, um, it was about midnight, and there was a great horned owl uh, hanging out right by the nest, and of course, the parents were in great distress, you know, because that's the, the, the owls, that's one of their, their prey. And um, they were trying to distract the great horned owl, and I sort of went around trying to do my best to distract the owl, <laughs> as if you can stop life from doing its thing. But anyhow, we try. It's, it's, it's the impulse, you know, that we want life to be happy. We want, it, we want, we want to protect those that are in potential suffering or in danger. Here's a story that I came across that I heard many years ago um, that I found recently that I think is a beautiful expression of the simplicity of this desire to relieve the pain of another, which is part of compassion. Once there was a contest to find the most caring child. Odd thing, but there you have it. The winner was a four-year-old child whose next-door neighbor was an elderly gentleman who had recently lost his wife. 
Upon seeing the man cry, the little boy went into the old gentleman's yard, climbed into his lap, and just sat there. And when his mother asked him what he had said to the neighbor, the little boy said, no, nothing, I just helped him cry. So it can be that simple, you know, that unconceptual, that immediate, that responsive. Another flavor of compassion when we hear about the more global layers of suffering that are happening in the world, the famines, the tsunamis, the endangered species, the, you know, the litany of ecological catastrophe. And we feel, you know, when our hearts are open, we feel the suffering of species, of the planet, of, of peoples who are devastated by earthquakes and ruin and famine. And, and we may feel a, a huge tender sadness when we look at images of war or violence and we feel the sadness of what humanity does to each other. You know. all, all different flavors of compassion. And one of the common themes in, in these is the, one of the wisdom aspects of compassion is there's a sense of commonality. There's a sense of we're in this together. It's not just your suffering. It's not just out there. But we share in this. It's what unites us. It's what brings us together so often. There's all these great stories in, from where I come from, from Britain, during the Second World War, where there was tremendous um, suffering with the bombing raids uh, in London at night. And people talked about that spirit of camaraderie that, 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 that never was n ever achieved again. And people actually missed that spirit of kindness and care that was manifest there because people really supported each other because it was clearly obvious everybody was suffering, everybody was being bombed, we're all in this together, how can we help each other out? There's a lovely story from the time of the Buddha when a woman, again, who had lost her son and was naturally very distraught, came to the Buddha, heard he was a great teacher and said, you know, can you bring my son back to life? And he said, well, I don't know about that, but be first, um, if you bring me a mustard seed from a house that has had no loss, no, no death in it, then we'll see what we can do. And so she goes, great. So she takes a son and, and goes knocking on the doors of the village, asking one after the next, do you, can I have a, a mustard seed? And of course, he said, yes, yes, we have lots of them. And, and then she would say, well, but it has to be from a house that has no death, no, no, no grieving going on. And the people would just laugh. What do you mean, no death? It's, you know, my grandfather just passed away or our son passed away in childbirth. Or... So she would go from house to house to house. And of course, at every house, she would receive the same story. That, yes, this is part of life. Yes, there's suffering. Yes, we've lost relatives and family members. And so after the end of going to all these different houses in the village, she, she realized, oh, this is a universal experience. This is not just happening to me. And then suddenly, in the knowing of that, in the seeing of that, the universality of suffering that allowed her to connect not just her own pain, but to the pain of the world, it allowed her to grieve and to move on. And in time, she buried her son, and she came back to the Buddha, not for, to revive her son's life, but to ask to join the order and become a nun.
So another aspect of compassion is it's not just a static feeling, but it's also an active quality, an active aspiration, a movement of the heart that wishes, not just feels the suffering of another or oneself, but actually wishes to relieve it, wishes it to, to in some way be healed or alleviated. Sometimes that's possible, sometimes not, that's not possible. But the movement is still the same. Just as often people say, you know, how can I wish someone to be happy when I know they're dying or when they're in great suffering? And the heart still wants everyone to be happy. The heart wants all beings to be happy, even though it knows some beings have to eat other beings to be happy. That's part of the great paradox we have living on this earth. But yet the heart still roots for life. There's a beautiful story of a woman here, I think on the last meta retreat last year, I taught with Sharon, who was struggling with this dichotomy that the world, you know, how can we have happiness in the world when there's warfare and dog eat dog and species have to eat other species. And as she was walking along down one of these lanes, she uh, was in the woods and saw this sort of waterfall of feathers coming from a tree. And there she looked up, there was a hawk eating, I assume, a chickadee or a sparrow or something like that. And at this, in that moment, that, that was the answer to her predicament. She wanted both the hawk and the sparrow to be happy. And yet one had to eat the other to survive. Yet still we want the sparrow to live <laughs> and the hawk to be happy. You know. Mary Oliver has this beautiful poem of um, uh, a grandmother, uh, about her grandmother, and it's called In Praise of a Craziness of a Certain Kind. On cold evenings, my grandmother, with ownership of only half her mind, the other half having flown back to Bohemia, would spread newspapers over the porch floor, so she said the garden ants could crawl beneath as under a blanket and keep warm. And what shall I wish for for myself? but being so struck by the lightning of years to be like her with what is left, that loving. Again, that's the, another sort of uh, way of talking about the fruition of when we, a life lived with intention to be happy, a life lived with intention to care is what, that, that becomes the fruition. So depending on, you know, intention is like setting a, uh, compass bearings. So, which, where, what, what kind of fruition do we want to see happen? Do we establish more seeds of frustration and competitiveness and envy, or kindness and care? We have a choice. So, this 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 natural, spontaneous movement of the heart. When the heart is open, when it feels and it sees suffering, desire to respond to it, desire to relieve it in some way. I had a friend during um, the uh, devastation in New Orleans, and his first response was he got his, he had this big, cool kind of truck that he lived in, and he just loaded up with food and as much stuff he could buy at Long's drugstore and just drove cross country four days. That's the responsiveness of the heart. 
This is from uh, our president. I'm not used to quoting presidents in my Dharma talks, but <laughs> since we have such a, an unusual president, we get to quote him every now and then, which I kind of like. You know, there's a lot of talk in this country about the federal deficit, but I think we should talk more about our empathy deficit. The ability to put ourselves in someone else's shoes, to see the world through the eyes of those who are different from us, the child who's hungry, the steel worker who's been laid off, the family who just lost their entire life they built together when the storm came to town. When you think like this, when you choose to broaden your ambit of concern and empathize with the plight of others, whether they are close friends or distant strangers, it becomes harder not to act, harder not to help. But it does take a certain orientation or inclination of mind to do that, to take the time, to take the effort to orient ourselves. It's so easy to turn the other way, to distract ourselves. And I'll talk a little bit ways we avoid uh, opening the heart in a little while. So how do we develop this quality of compassion? So primarily the focus here is on developing metta, developing loving kindness. And as you've seen in the course of your day, um, there'll be naturally times when you meet suffering in the room, suffering in yourself. And we get a chance to see what happens when that heart turns towards suffering. Particularly in ourselves, I want to be stressing uh, in this talk, there's a yogi who's also a researcher, Kristen Neff, who was supposed to be here for this retreat and couldn't be. And she did done quite a bit of research on self-compassion. And in her definition, the three aspects of self-compassion are the being kind and understanding to oneself in instances that we're, when we're suffering and feeling inadequate versus feeling judgmental and critical. And the second is a sense of common humanity, which I talked about, that we see the universality of our suffering. It's not just our own. It's an unavoidable part of being human. And the third, the self-compassion allows this quality of um, presence to hold uh, pain with a sense of balance and equanimity. And in many of her research studies and other people's research studies, they've linked this quality that's been developed in people of self-compassion to psychological health, to well-being, to life satisfaction, increased feelings of happiness, optimism, and connectedness. Which are interesting qualities. When you think about what arises out of turning the mind towards suffering, you wouldn't expect it to be increased feelings of happiness, optimism, and connectedness. But maybe we know that from our own experience that it brings a certain well-being or a certain buoyancy or a certain courage of heart. One thing I always like to stress, whether it's in the metta practice or in the compassion practice, is to remember the innate, the innate aspect of these qualities, that we're not plucking something that lives here at IMS and we're sort of growing it 
we're not grabbing something from the from the from the mall of spiritual qualities and buying it we're nurturing it from within we're cultivating what's already here we're we're seeing what gets in the way we're letting go of what keeps the heart closed what's kept it down what's kept it downtrodden so it's the same with this quality of compassion it's not something that's foreign to us it's something that can be nurtured and developed and we can understand what gets in the way of it from from being more full there's a cartoon that i like that speaks of this good old gary larson um, so we're in, we're in hell and Satan is coming out from his fiery tombs and he's shouting, mom, no, no. <laughs> and the caption underneath is, says, despite his repeated efforts to explain things to her, Satan could never dissuade his mother from offering cookies and milk to the accursed. And she has a little tray with the cookies and milk and a little apron where it has little devils on it. And <laughs> Mom, no. So we all have that little <laughs> mothering instinct within us somewhere that naturally wants to, I don't know if it's offering milk and cookies, but whatever your version of that might be, the, 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 that natural impulse there's a story of uh, somebody walking down the street. Imagine you're walking down the street and somebody bumps into you. have got an armful of groceries and someone bumps into you and you're just about to turn around and say, hey, what do you think you're doing? Are you blind? And as you turn around, you realize the person is blind and that person's also spilt their groceries and the milk and eggs and the tomato juice is spilt everywhere. And from that harshness of anger immediately would would be a natural response of oh my goodness are you hurt can i help you what can i do i'm so sorry that, that again that that comes so naturally or can do so naturally so for the compassion quality to grow for this this quality of this empathic response, the, the work really is in how we relate to our suffering. How we turn towards ourselves when we're in some kind of difficulty, some kind of pain, some turmoil, some angst. And normally what we so often do when we're feeling some suffering or pain is, is what? What do we do when we're feeling pain. We turn away from it. We run away from it. We avoid it naturally. Who wants to feel pain? Right? But we ne never, our strategies to avoid it never really fully work. And sometimes you show up at places like this and you end up having to feel it all anyway, or the backlog of it. And the backlog can be overwhelming. There's an expression, by running away from suffering, we run towards it. Because you can never fully get away from it. So better still to turn towards it, to feel it, to face it, to understand it. 
by turning that kind-hearted attention that we're developing here with the metta practice, as that touches the suffering, it naturally turns to a responsiveness. I remember one year here, I was doing a, a, a lot of long retreats at this time in my life and um, went through one of those retreats from hell. It was a long retreat, so it was felt like a long hell. And um, uh, incredible pain erupted, uh, quite out of the blue, quite unexpected, um, that really knocked me off course for quite a while. Um, and was, was incredibly humbling to my very sophisticated spiritual ego that I'd built up around being a great practitioner and a great yogi and how good I was and I was on my way to be a monk in Burma and it was all, you know, enlightenment was steps away. And of course, life when we get a little cocky has a good habit of slapping us and saying, take a look at this, see how you do with this. So that's what happened to me and um, it was very humbling and very painful and challenging. And I'd been practicing maybe about a dozen years prior to that. And I started practice uh, in back in England with meta practice. So I'd been doing mindfulness and meta practice for 12 years, pretty, pretty solidly. And what I saw as I was slammed with this very intense pain, that what came through, not through any will of my own, because my will had kind of been, been somewhat dismantled at that point, was that there was, there was a caring attention to the suffering. There wasn't me doing anything that just felt like the, the summation, the, the, all that practice that I'd done allowed me, what, what was left was the residue of that, which was a, a kindness and a caring attention to what was going on. So there was a lot of surrender to the pain and, and it was met with a lot of compassion. And I wasn't trying to be compassionate and be a good Buddhist and very spiritual. And it was just a natural caring. And it was really, and I was like watching from a distance, like, wow, look at that. <laughs> Who would have thought that would have arisen? And it was very, um, it was a great lesson to see, this, to see how practice, how the fruits of practice can arise when we least expect it. And of course, as many of you know, as we go through these deeper, darker places in ourselves, when we go through these very difficult, painful journeys in our practice, it often, it's often the very thing that allows the heart to really open, to really bloom. And it was, it was, a, very, it was a very marked turning point in my life and my practice, going through this, you know, they call it dark night of the soul, but I don't know, that was whoever coined that phrase, they had a quick one because it's more like, a, for me, it was like a dark year of the soul. Um, and from that, you know, I could see what happened after that experience where the, the heart really sort of was shattered open, kind of like the poet Rashani was talking about. And that, uh, and that reoriented my practice. Prior to that, my practice was much more I was much more interested in emptiness and freedom, but it was coming from a place of wanting to, to get to a place of freedom that was away from this messy realm of being human. And after this experience, there was much more equality, there was much, it felt more integrated in terms of embracing the humanness as a, manif as a manifestation 
of that emptiness and freedom, but not as, as an avoidance. And at the, the end of the retreat, I was sitting with a friend and um, it was also a good juxtaposition. I had had this friendship with this person for quite a while, but she had a, had a very difficult life and had a lot of suffering. And there was, prior to that experience, that retreat, there was a way that I couldn't fully open to that friendship and to her because of the extent of her suffering, because I couldn't deal with it in myself. There was a way I couldn't fully open to her. And it was very interesting to see afterwards when I'd really opened to a very different level of my own suffering, that I could really fully take her in. It was a very beautiful thing to see. So, as I mentioned, and as we we've mentioned the, at this point in the retreat, things start to come up, difficulties, pain, memories. And as Sharon spoke to this afternoon and Guy uh, this morning, or last night, that those times when we're feeling overcome with pain, sadness, grief, loss, terror, whatever, that it becomes more appropriate to meet that experience with, with, the, with the intention and the practice of compassion, the metta. Sometimes trying to wish ourselves, may I be happy, may I be peaceful, when we're feeling completely destitute and forlorn and sorrowful and full of grief, just feels like a mismatch. And so using the compassion phrases, may I be free from pain and suffering, may I hold this suffering with ease, I care that I'm suffering, I care about your suffering, feels like a much more attuned response. So I really invite you to, to use that when, when, when the suffering and pain is present in yourself, when you're feeling that for your friend or whoever pops into your mind or somebody in, in, in the retreat here, to use, to see how, how, um, how responsive and attuned those phrases can be that allow you to just stay with the pain not fix it, not get rid of it, not change it, but simply to be with it, to hang out with it. And in that hanging out with it, in the allowing of it to be there, with that kind-heartedness, it does allow the possibility of the heart to open more deeply into compassion, into kindness, into empathy. And there are many things that we're feeling the suffering uh, from that are things that don't go away, you know the aging, perhaps a terminal illness, perhaps some loss. And so, again, it's even more important to meet those, those life realities with this quality that's not trying to fix or change. So we're learning how to stay present, stay steady in the face of difficulty. So when we come on retreat, we either bring our own little knapsack of pain, difficulty, you know, the, you know, as people were talking about today, the grief that comes from just simply living a life that's disconnected from our hearts. How many of you noticed how when you do this practice and come to some connection with your heart, there's some sadness or grief from the, f- because, from the very fact that you've been so disconnected for such a long time. 
And there's often a natural grieving process that happens, just the same way when we realize how disconnected we are from our body, or from our deepest values, or our deepest intentions, or our own goodness. And so, so perhaps that's what you come with, or you come with some loss, or you come with some disappointment in relationships, or in family life, or some health issues. So we, so we learn how to hold those, meet those, be with those, with this sort of embracing quality of heart. And just like with mindfulness practice, sometimes we can be with that, sometimes we can open to that, sometimes we can't, sometimes it's too much, sometimes it's overwhelming, sometimes we need to take a break, we need a mindfulness break, we need a walking in the snow break, we need a space from that because we, you know, it's hard to keep the heart open consistently. Sometimes the pain just comes from the, the very act of being on retreat, sitting in these postures where our legs are in these odd positions for eight hours a day. And we learn how to be kind when our body is in pain. What does it mean to be kind to your body on this retreat? For some of you, it means not sitting on the floor and sitting in a chair where your legs don't feel like they're falling off so you can actually focus on the meta practice and not on the pain in your legs. <laughs> For some of you, as you mentioned today, it's resting more because you've come very exhausted. Sometimes it's learning how to work with the emotional, the tense emotions that come here, the anxiety or the fear, the terror. Sometimes it's learning how to work with the judgments that arise. I'm not going to say much about judgments today because Sally's going to say more about that tomorrow. Anybody having any judgments here? Okay, there's one person put his hand up. <laughs> He's the honest one at the back. <laughs> so this is from a cartoon strip I like a lot. It's called from, um, it's a cartoon strip, Rhymes with Oranges. And it's called A Checklist of Feeling Pathetic. See if you can tick off any of these uh, on the list. Choose someone and compare yourself unfavorably to them. <laughs> Done that yet? You found the perfect yogi, the perfect Buddha meditator, the perfect walking meditator. Make a note of all the people you regularly disappoint. <laughs> we laugh and we do these things. It's, it's really good to laugh. It's really, I mean, humor is essential on the, if you haven't found that already, to, to be able to laugh at ourselves is essential. Notice, examine your face. This is something you do, especially a lot on retreat. Examine your face closely in the mirror and notice all the flaws. <laughs> I had a friend who had one of those times 10 magnification mirrors. And I kept saying, that, you know, please, re I mean, if anybody looks in that, they're going to see all these crevices and cracks. And she reduced it to a times eight magnification. And I was very happy. Relive embarrassing and awful moments that occurred years ago. Disregard all compliments from people who supposedly love you. And in this, this caption is a picture of a woman and the comments coming, oh, you look great. And the bubble in her mind is, don't patronize me. 
And lastly, from now on, believe that this is how you will always feel, whatever it is. So it's amazing what we do, isn't it, with our minds and the torture and the pain that that we can do to ourselves. Here we are sitting in this very idyllic environment, and yet we're busy comparing ourselves to people from years ago, and we're living embarrassing moments. And so it's good to have compassion for all of that, because we torture ourselves willingly and unwillingly, consciously and unconsciously. And the question, as we've said before, is all of these things will arise, and the question is, how do you relate to them? How do you relate to what's happening when we're judging ourselves, when we're comparing ourselves, when we're examining the mirror and noticing more gray hairs and more wrinkles, or whatever it is you're noticing? How do you relate to that experience? Is there more judgment? Is there harshness? Is there kindness? Is there humor? So some words about some of the obstacles to this quality of the heart. If it's such a beautiful quality, how come we're not residing in it all the time? Or maybe some of you are. But what gets in the way? And one of the, the most noticeable things is the way that we can hold difficulty and pain at a distance where we separate ourselves out from it, particularly with other people and with situations in the world. And uh, this is known as a near enemy. There's different flavors of the near enemy. One flavor of the near enemy is this quality of pity, which is a way that we separate ourselves out from the pain that's happening over there to those people, to that person, not happening to me, not connected to me, not shared by me. And so there's this sort of, this this looking down upon, or looking across this chasm, and it has a different quality. The, The quality of empathy is a shared experience, a shared knowledge of that pain. And pity is, is a sort of aloof, distant, almost has sometimes a feeling of condescension. If there's a student I work with, um, and she had uh, lost both of her parents when she was very young. And she said she was, a, a, she was subject to a lot of pity from a lot of people she encountered at the funeral and afterwards. And she could tell the difference between when someone was genuinely caring and when someone was pity. And she said the pity actually burned. It felt like a burning. It was that real to her. So it was a, it was a very interesting example how that you know that it has an effect you know we we were feeling sensate creatures we have an effect on each other so i had to work with this recently i um and also recently now uh last year um, last year maybe two some time ago um i uh woke up in the morning was going to go teach a day long on matter at spirit rock and i was just getting ready, brushed my teeth, went to spit out my toothpaste, and I went to spit. And um, I couldn't spit my toothpaste out. And I was, that was weird. My numb was, my mouth was a little funny, and I thought, oh, I must have slept on the wrong side of my face. And you know. Anyhow, I went through the day, and my face got progressively numb, and um, 
turns out I, to cut a long story short, I got Bell's palsy, which shuts down the, the trigeminal nerve and half your face goes numb for, can be short time or can be permanent. And um, so one, fa one side of your face looks like you have really good Botox treatment. And the other side of your face looks really, the side that's moving looks really weird because the other side's really relaxed and the other side looks really deformed. So and it, made, it was hard to drink, it was hard to drink. I was sort of dribbling and slurping and food would get stuck over one side of my mouth. It's like having a big Novocaine shot. And it looked kind of weird and, and I was definitely self-conscious. Um, but I was more concerned about the dribbling. I thought, God, if this was lifelong and I was dribbling each meal, that would be really a drag because I drink so much tea, you know, just imagine sleeping walking around with a bib and <laughs> and so the first feeling that came up really was um, self-pity like oh no why me what did I do what how, this is this sucks what did I do wrong and this is terrible and um, and it wasn't until the day after and I was in this class and I was sort of feeling my face and it was sort of felt like rubber and and the thought arose oh I can love this too I can learn to love this too, this numb, sort of odd, non-functioning face. Uh, and it shifted, it shifted the pity to, oh, yeah, this is, it's, it's like it, it shifted the disconnect. I was no longer going, oh, you poor thing, but like, oh, feeling the resonance of that, feeling the reality of that. And luckily it, you know, came back, I'm very happy to say. <laughs> so another... Uh, more uh, uh, more painful and, and, and more intense obstacle is what's known as the, 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 the far enemy, um, which is the quality of cruelty, which is the extreme, the, the, the quality of kindness that, and, and compassion that wishes well, that wants to relieve suffering. Cruelty wishes ill on another. It's this very harsh cold, bitter place in our hearts towards ourselves, towards each other. We can, and the way I notice this the most with working with people is seeing how we turn it towards ourselves. I see less people actively being cruel but I see, to others, but I see people being very cruel to themselves, particularly with the thoughts, particularly with the harsh standards, the self-judgments, the meanness, the way we neglect our body, the way we don't listen to our heart, the way we push ourselves. You know, how many of you ex arrived exhausted on the retreat out of a certain pushing? Some of it's just because of life and busy schedules, but some of it's because we don't listen. And this is a form of, it's a subtle form of cruelty to, to do that and just to be watchful of that tendency where we, where we disconnect from ourselves so much. There's a beautiful poem that ends with the line, a flower cannot, cannot be opened with a hammer. A flower cannot be opened with a hammer. And sometimes when this quality of, of harshness and meanness is there with ourselves, we're like, we're trying to force ourselves to open. And it, in a way it can be quite cruel because as you know, you can't force a flower's petals to open. They flower through the right conditions. So noticing whether there's that quality in yourself, like, come on, matter, like, or enough, it's day three, I should be really loving everybody by now. Like, God, you know, it's a tightness, it's like a steeliness in the heart, and um, it, it, it requires softening, relaxing, gentleness. 
So there's the avoidance of pain as a natural uh, obstacle where we just don't want to go anywhere near our own or others' pain. Uh, there's, a, there's fear can sometimes be there that if I go into the pain, I'm going to be overwhelmed. So therefore, it's best to keep it at alarm's length. And then there's just the way that we distract ourselves. We just happily, numbingly space out, check out, you know, we, you know it's the times that we find ourselves at the refrigerator with our hand in the pint of, you know, yogurt or ice cream or chocolate or whatever it is. You know, the ways that we use TV, media, substances, anything to not be with our experience. And of course, as we don't, as we block ourselves from the opportunity of being with our experience, therefore the heart loses that opportunity to open. And lastly, uh, it's quality of numbness. We can get, sometimes that can come from actually having compassion fatigue, where we exposed ourselves to so much suffering, whether it's on the media or through our work or through our family or through looking after elderly relatives, whatever it is. And the heart shuts down with, with, um, with, with, a, with a, perhaps an appropriate response of it's too much, I can't deal with this anymore at this time. And so it, it, it necessitates this quality of discernment to know what a capacity is. So just because we're, we're having this talk on compassion, um, there's a really need, because since we live in this world now where there's so much information, so much exposure to, to the immensity of suffering, and it's very hard to keep taking it all in. I take frequent media fasts where I, I, I'm aware that, you know, the suffering in the world and ecological catastrophe and wars, and I don't need to be reading, you know, the news and watching CNN every day to remind myself, because that often just causes the, the heart to numb. So being sensitive to what our capacity is. So just the last few minutes of the talk, I would like to speak a little to the the greater expanse of compassion, these, these, all these Brahma-viharas, these divine abodes, they're boundless qualities of the heart. And they attune towards the, the, the minutia of the suffering in ourselves, the suffering in each other, but they also uh, invite us to expand, to accommodate and include all of life, all beings. There's, I want to read this piece from Einstein, which is often quoted, but I think it's a beautiful piece of uh, writing that speaks to this, this movement to universalize this, what's often the quality that's reserved for a selected few, friends and family. He says, a human being is part of the whole called by us a universe, a part limited in time and space, and he experiences himself and his thoughts and feelings as something separate from the rest a kind of optical delusion of consciousness. This delusion is a kind of prison for us, restricting us to our personal desires and affection for a few people nearest to us. Our task must be to free ourselves from this by widening our circle of compassion to embrace all living creatures and the whole of nature in its beauty. So the work that we're doing here, sometimes even though it can feel like how does this relate to the to the immensity of suffering in, in the world, the principle is the same. And the principle of, of turning our attention to whatever suffering arises in the field of our own experience 
gives us the strength and the courage and the resiliency and the, and the qualities necessary to learn how to open it to the widest sphere. The, the principle is the same. The quality is the same. It's just a different level of magnitude. Chogyung Trungpa talked about the, the quality of compassion as developing what he called the tender heart of a warrior that has a power to heal the world. That it's a very courageous thing that we're doing here to be with ourselves, to face ourselves, to be with our suffering, to be, to allow the heart to open is a very courageous practice. And in the Buddhist tradition, one of the most beautiful qualities um, from that culture is this idea of the Bodhisattva. Someone who understands fully the power of compassion and, this flower, and, and what's flowered within their heart is this quality of bodhicitta, which, which is this deep upwelling that wishes to relieve the suffering of the world, that stops at no, that has no boundaries on it. And it's really one of the, the depths, the, the, one of the potentials of this practice is to summon that quality that wishes to, that, to relieve the suffering of the world. And there's many beautiful examples, the Dalai Lama being one, uh, who embody that quality. This is, this is a, from George Bernard Shaw, who speaks about it in his own way. He said, there is a true joy in life, being used for a purpose recognized by yourself as a mighty one, the being a force of nature instead of a feverish little clot of ailments and grievances, judgment, complaining that the world will not devote itself to making you happy. I am of the opinion that my life belongs to the whole community, and as long as I live, it is my privilege to do for it whatever I can. I want to be thoroughly used up when I die, for the harder I work, the more I love. I rejoice in life for its own sake. Life is no brief candle to me, it is a sort of splendid torch which I have got to hold up for the moment, and I want to make it burn as brightly as possible before handing it on to future generations. It's a very beautiful, powerful expression of that boundless heart. I'm going to have to slip this story in, even though it doesn't quite fit in, but I'm determined to put it in anyway. So um, one question that, that I, that's good to reflect on when we're thinking about these qualities is, is how we've experienced receiving it. Because sometimes we might think, well, you know, I don't really know what compassion's like in myself. I don't you know what does this mean. But if we think about when we've received the compassionate response of another, it sometimes gives us a little more entryway into you know, fleshing out the quality. And uh, the story that came to mind when I was thinking about this was um, I was on the phone some time ago with my dad and um, I'd been through a, a somewhat painful uh, relationship breakup and various friends had all given various points of view about that like, well, you know, it wasn't meant to be or, you know, someone else is going to come along that's better or you know all these new age spins that get put on you know <laughs> <laughs> these difficult things that happen in life and he just he said he listened to what was going on he said oh that's really sad that must be really hard and I'm sorry and it was like 
Wow. That's just what I've been wanting to hear the whole time. <laughs> You're the first person to say, oh yeah, it's hard, it's difficult, and I'm sorry. And it was a really beautiful uh, expression of, the, again, the simplicity of this quality that wishes for the relief of suffering. So I'll leave you with this um, quote from this poem from Rumi, who has so much to say about the quality of love and kindness. He says, there is no companion but love, no starting or finishing, yet there is a road, the friend calls from there. Why do you hesitate when lives are in danger? There is no companion but love, no starting or finishing, yet there is a road, and the friend calls from there. Why do you hesitate when lives are in danger? So let's sit quietly for a few minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.